Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're tuned back in to The God Solution. Well, this is going to be a special show. We're going to interview Dr. Michael Lacona. He's been on the show before. He's considered a world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection and on the reliability of the New Testament documents. He is a powerful Christian apologist, and I am excited to talk to him again. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to see some of our past shows with him. We did a three-part interview with him a couple years ago. Anyway, to tell you a little bit about Dr. Mike Lacona, he has authored The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, a book that he co-authored with Dr. Gary Habermas, who's also been on the show numerous times here. He also wrote Paul Meets Muhammad, a Christian-Muslim debate on the resurrection, and he's contributed to other works and written a few others as well. He currently teaches at Houston Baptist University, which has an explosive apologetics program. You can find out more about Dr. Michael Lacona at risenjesus.com. Again, that's risenjesus.com. Well, anyway... I'm excited to have him on. I hope you enjoy the interview. This will be the first part of a two-part interview. We'll conclude the interview with Dr. Lacona next week. Welcome to the God Solution Show, Dr. Mike Lacona. Well, thanks, Nate. Good to be back on. You recently did a series of debates or articles with uh, Dr. Ehrman, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a huge question. You've become one of the foremost experts on the resurrection, you and Dr. Habermas, and both of you are defending the resurrection, which is arguably the most important thing to defend. And I just wanted to ask you as we got started, how did you become convinced of the resurrection? Hmm. Well, I I would say, you know, when I became a Christian at age 10, I was convinced of it. Um, It wasn't due to any kind of uh, historical investigation or rational thinking at that point. I was entirely on faith. Um, But I I began to develop doubts about the Christian faith when I was in graduate school, and um, Gary Habermas pointed me to the resurrection, and he said, look, it it all kind of boils down to this. If Jesus rose, Christianity's true. If he didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity's false. And I looked at the evidence at that point. It wasn't an in-depth thing, but it was enough to satisfy my doubts at at that point. But later on, Years later, I looked at it again and looked at it in more depth and uh, came out with a book with Gary Habermas, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, in 2004. Um, But we finished up on that, writing that in 2003. And then I wanted to look into it further. I wanted to approach the resurrection apologetically again, but from a different angle, the angle of history. But then as I started, I got into a Ph.D. program and started to study it from that angle, And I saw that professional historians, philosophers of history were saying that one's biased. We're all biased. Everyone is biased. We all have our presuppositions. We all have our desired outcomes. And that bias on our everyone's part 
uh, is a serious threat to compromise the integrity of any historical investigation. And I recognize, you know what, I've got my own biases here. Uh, I want the resurrection to be true. And so i got to be really careful here. If I'm really trying to do an investigation, an honest, authentic investigation for truth in its integrity, I really have to try to minimize the impact of my bias. And so, wow, that was very difficult. And I, I took it very seriously because by my very nature, we're all different. We all have our idiosyncrasies. I'm a second guesser, and it's not just on faith matters. It's on everything. It frustrates my wife at times. <laughs> um, <laughs> just on everything, I'm a second guesser. And, and it frustrates me, too. But that's just the way I'm wired. Um, and so I, was, I got obsessed about my research. And um, um, as a graduate student, writing a 20-page double-space paper with a few footnotes was a nightmare for me. But I was so obsessed with this investigation of the resurrection that my dissertation ended up being more than 500 pages single-spaced and more than 2,000 footnotes. So I, I just got obsessed with it. I wanted to get to the bottom line. I wanted to know truth. I wanted to follow truth no matter where it led. And I was willing to give up my faith, and a few times I almost did. So that was my quest for truth. And, you know, it was the data. It was comparing hypotheses using strictly controlled historical method that eventually just impressed me uh, tremendously on the strength of the resurrection hypothesis. Wow. I wish everyone would look at the evidence for the resurrection with that kind of diligence. I see so many people brush this off without even investigating, without even considering the evidence. This past Easter, we did a Q&A on the resurrection on the campus here. I'm at UNM now, and we had, you know, some Christians, but also some non-Christians and some atheists come to the to the event, and so many people just brushed it off. They They didn't even care what the evidence said. I gave out your book, and Habermas's book there, and it just blew my mind that so many people would look at something so significant and not treat it with that kind of diligence. So thank you for for doing your diligence, and it's paying off now. Well, so I appreciate that. Nate. You just participated in this dialogue with Ehrman concerning the reliability of the Gospels. Overall, what did you think of the experience? Oh, it was fun. It was really enjoyable. In fact. It may have been the most enjoyable debate in which I've participated. And I, I've participated in about two dozen public debates at this point. Um, I like Bart Ehrman. I, I consider him a friend. We've debated several times before. They've always been collegial. And, um, you know, I like the guy. Um, he's the kind of guy I'd, I'd enjoy hanging out with at times. So, um, so it was a collegial debate. Um, I had never debated on the topic of the historical reliability of the gospel. I've never participated in a written debate either. Um, after uh, completing my dissertation, and my doctoral research on the resurrection, uh, I, even as I was completing it, I, I was diving into the Gospels at that point, pertaining to historical reliability and looking at the objections that people like Bart Ehrman and others brought up against their historical reliability. And that's been my focus and that, and specifically, gospel differences, discrepancies, over the past, um, well, uh, about eight years now. Um, so, uh, and I got a book coming out this fall on, on the topic of why are there differences in the gospels that, based on uh, seven years of research, seven and a half years of research, um, 
so I, I've been looking at this, and I figured, you know, I'd like to, at some point to debate on the historical reliability of the Gospels, but I don't think I'm ready for it yet. I didn't think I'd be ready for another two or three years, because there was still more that I wanted to look into, and it's, it's, it's a lifelong journey, of course, mm-hmm. but I wanted another two to three years to look into it. But then when I was offered this opportunity, I thought, well, this would give me the opportunity to throw out these some ideas that I have. It will motivate me to construct an argument, and that can always be fine-tuned. And this can be something to lay things out and get some critical feedback from someone as, as smart, as brilliant as, as Ehrman. He's probably the best out there right now, at least in North America, who would be a critic of the historical reliability of the Gospel. So let's just see how this turns out. And I'm just really pleased with the way it turned out. Um, we had really good interactions, and um, I, I don't think he effectively answered the arguments that I presented. So um, I've been working on fine-tuning it since, and presently I'm working on developing a, a lecture on the historical reliability of the Gospels, and that'll be something I give and fine-tune over the next year or two. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much. They're, uh, they've told me they're going to uh, make this into a book. It should be out sometime later this year, uh, electronic format that uh, can be there for, like, Kindle um, and uh, a print-on-demand. So uh, that'd be fun. That'd be awesome. All right, can you summarize your argument briefly for us? Well, I, you know, I'd say, okay, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, arguments that are given against the historic reliability of the gospel. So uh, I've addressed them elsewhere, like when we talk about authorship, who wrote them, uh, since the Gospels are anonymous, uh, how do we know who wrote them? The Gospel authors were biased, everybody's biased, so every author's biased, they carry their own biases. Contradictions, um, are they written too late after the events they purport to describe, making memory questionable? And, um, you know, they, were they written by eyewitnesses? Do they contain eyewitness testimony, things like that? They would object on those kind of grounds. So I've answered that elsewhere. I, I don't think those objections hold up. But that doesn't mean the Gospels are historically reliable. You still have to build a positive case for their historical reliability. So what I did was I um, laid out five criteria for that, such as, can we establish that, and and this would apply to any ancient literature, historical literature. Um, So, you know, do we have good reasons to believe the author intended to write an accurate account? Uh, do we have good reasons to believe the author showed good judgment in his choice of sources, in his use of those sources? Do we have good reason to believe that the author was capable of recalling, uh, recalling stories accurately because those stories, um, there were things about it in the in sources and, and all that that would make it possible to recall them accurately? Uh, can we verify numerous items reported by an ancient author to, to be true? And do we have reasons to believe that no more than a very small percentage of what that author reports may be false? So when a, when a, uh, uh, a writing such as uh, the Twelve Caesars by Suetonius or Tacitus's Annals of Rome or Sallust's uh, um, War with Catiline, things like that, when we read something like that, or the Gospels, if they... It, if they can fulfill these five criteria pretty well, then I think we can adjudicate and say that they're historically reliable. And so what is your conclusion about the Gospels? They're historically reliable. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of guessed that was your conclusion. Well, that's great, and I can't but, wait but to... But uh-huh. 
have to, to look at how, what, what does it mean to say something that's historically reliable. I think that's really important, and I think that that is a key in this whole debate. Because you see, Bart Ehrman wants to say that in order to be historically reliable, um, what is being described has to be precisely a precise description, an accurate, an accurate description in its precise details. If it did not happen precisely as described, then it can't be said to be historically accurate. And I, that's just, that's not an accurate view of how any ancient historical literature was written, be it Tacitus, Suetonius, Sallust, Plutarch, any of them. None of them had that kind of objective in mind. Um, and so we have to be able to assess those ancient sources according to the literary conventions in play for historical literature during the time in which those authors lived, rather than imparting or imposing our ideas of modern precision upon them. Um, and we have to take that into consideration. So if they were allowed some liter uh, artistic license, uh, we have to be able to allow that within the, uh, the concept of historical reliability. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. So he might expect a videotape type of document, something that, that describes everything in videotape detail, whereas we would be comfortable with a story that, that is historically accurate but does not share all the details and might share different details from different perspectives. That's kind of what you're saying? That's what I'm saying, but I'm also saying more than that. Let me give you a modern example. Okay. Have you seen the movie Apollo 13? Yes. Okay, great movie. Ron Howard involved in making this thing happen. In fact, Ron Howard was praised for how uh, for the historical accuracy of this movie. Um, uh, now, I'm old enough. I'll be 55 in July. So I'm old enough that to remember that when I was a kid, and this went on, and I don't remember if it was 1969 or 1970, um, when this went on, I remember when the Apollo 13 spacecraft had that problem, and my mom was saying, hey, pray for these astronauts. I mean, I was really into space stuff back then, the Apollo missions and landing on the moon. I mean, I was into that big time. Um, and, I mean, the whole U.S. was at that point. It was just amazing. And I remember my mom saying, pray for the astronauts. They may not make it back alive. They're in serious trouble. So I remember that movie. Well, they, NASA, we didn't know this as the public back then, but NASA only gave them a 10% chance of being able to return alive. Um, so you have Gene Kranz, who was uh, depicted uh, in the movie by uh, Ed Harris. Um, and Gene Kranz and Mission Control, his team there, just they never considered the possibility of losing these guys, even though everything was against them. They said, look, we're going to figure out what the problem is. We're going to come up with a solution. We're going to bring these guys back alive. Failure is not an option. That became the famous tagline for the movie. It was a statement that was given by Gene Krantz in the movie. But Gene Krantz never uttered that statement. Neither did anyone ever utter that statement. Failure is not an option during that time. The script writers put that statement and uh, came up with that statement and assigned it to Gene Krantz in order to depict the attitude and the approach that they had towards solving this problem. So you'd say, well, is that part of the movie historically reliable? 
well, in a precise sense, have given us a precisely accurate description of what actually occurred, you, you would say no. But you'd say, well, is it an accurate depiction in terms of the gist of what happened? Are they giving us an accurate portrait and telling us about that approach? Yes, it is accurate in that sense. And when we, uh, that's in modern historiography. So when we go back to the past, we see that they did that far more often than we are comfortable with doing today. But they did it, and they did it on a regular basis. So would we say Apollo 13 movie is historically reliable? Yes. Well, when ancient literature did the same kind of thing, was it historically reliable? Yes. That's what I would add to that. Got it. So it's a difference between quotations and paraphrases, kind of. That might, uh, that might be much an example. So, yeah. And in the yeah. text, in the in the Greek and Hebrew documents, they didn't even have quotation marks, correct? They they did not. No. So, so this kind of is not far fetched. It's not outside of the mainstream of how they wrote. No, not no, not at all. This is this is how ancient literature, ancient historical writers, did things. It's precisely how they <laughs> precisely how they did things. This is how they wrote history. So Ehrman has made his entire career one of attacking the reliability of Scripture. Why do you think we can trust the Bible? We kind of talked a little bit about it, but maybe in a, in a short, concise argument, why should we trust the Bible? Well, let, let's just go with the Gospels for now, because that's okay. what I've been focusing on, okay? And I'm Perfect. not an Old Testament guy. Um, that's a different genre of literature, a lot of it, and we have to consider the Bible in the context of the genre which the literature acts is... is the Gospels and Acts, a different genre than the Epistles. You know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms, different than Genesis and, you know, you have to, and Revelation and all that, they're all different. So let's just look at the Gospels. Now, I think that we can trust them. It's historically reliable because, you know, we look at those five criteria I mentioned. Uh, we can see that the author did intend, uh, we have good reasons to believe that the author intended to write accurate history. I mean, they state it. Uh, like you look at the first four verses in Luke's Gospel, he's stating his purpose is to write an accurate account of Jesus. You look in John, he makes a similar statement in John chapter 19, verse 35, that he's testifying the truth, and we know his testimony is true. Um, so they're, they're stating their intent. They're writing in the genre of ancient biography, which has history in view. Um, you know, so they're... they're, they're the Gospels are the earliest accounts of the life of Jesus. Yes, there are other accounts, like the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, and things like that. But these are written after the Gospels, and there are no accounts of the life of Jesus that are contemporary with the Gospels that present a different portrait of Jesus than what we find in the Gospels. So we have good reason to believe that these authors intended to write accurate history. Um... It's too much to get into now, but we can see that the authors did show good judgment in their choice of sources. So uh, even if we just bracket the issue of who wrote the Gospels, okay, because that is debated, um, the majority of scholars do agree that the Gospel of Mark, whoever wrote it, used Peter as the primary source. And most scholars do believe that it was Mark. They accept that traditional authorship. Um, they accept the uh, traditional authorship of the Gospel of Luke, that he got his information from Mark, from eyewitness sources, from Paul, um, and for uh, what's 
scholars typically refer to as the Q material, which would predate Matthew and Luke. Um, John, even though that's hotly disputed who wrote the Gospel of John, even evangelicals dispute it, um, they, the majority of Johannine scholars today agree that John's primary source was an eyewitness, a disciple of Jesus. So, I mean, these are pretty good sources. They, they're using good judgment in their choice of sources. Um, they're not involved in large-scale conjecturing because the, the figures are writing uh, the thing about Jesus, the traditions. Jesus' life was within the generation, a few decades of when these authors are writing. So you didn't need to have large-scale conjecturing. Um, so the, the authors and his sources were capable of recalling the stories accurately. We can see that, um, you know, Jesus taught in a, in a way that facilitated memorying, uh, remembering his teachings. He spoke in hyperbolic language. You know, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out and throw it from you. Or if you, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children, you can't be my disciple. The, these hyperbolic languages for shock value and to help us to remember these statements. And then we've got to remember that the disciples walked with Jesus, traveled with him uh, for one and a half to three years. And it's not like Jesus had to come up with a new sermon for every town that he went to. Every town he could preach the same sermon, at least the first time around. And he may have had just a dozen sermons. We don't know, but he might have had just a dozen sermons. He was a traveling itinerant speaker. And so the disciples would have heard Jesus preach the same sermon over and 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 over. And then Jesus sent them out. You know how they say the best way to, to master something is to teach it? So they'd heard him teach these things, you know, dozens and dozens of times. And then he sent them out to teach the same things. Some of them probably took notes with them so that they could keep these things straight. Jesus, again, had arranged these things in manners that were easy to memorize, not only shock language, but parables and um, all, you know, all the kind of things that a good teacher would do to facilitate memory. Um, arrange them in patterns and things like this. And we, we know oral tradition worked in this way as well that made it easy to communicate later on. So they go out and they preach over and over and over and over, dozens of times. And then they come back, they debrief Jesus. And then they hear him again, preach these same things over and over and over and over, dozens and dozens of times. And then after he dies and rises from the dead, um, they go out, and for the next several decades, they preach the same message hundreds of times. So they were in a, a fantastic position to be able to recall Jesus' teachings in a very accurate manner. And um, you compare this with something like the famous speech that we have of Patrick Henry, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, uh, in the late 18th century. Well, what, how do we know what Patrick Henry said, even though we, ha we have that transcribed down? There were no notes that have survived, so how do we know what he said? Well, the biographer uh, put it together more than 40 years later, and he only based it on three or four people who reconstruct, helped him reconstruct it. Not all of them were eyewitnesses, and the majority of it came from a guy named Judge St. George Tucker, who was there. He only reconstructed two paragraphs of that entire speech. He didn't have notes that he had written. He's recalling it from memory 42 years later. So we can have far more confidence that the Gospels uh, give us the, an accurate recounting of Jesus' teachings 
far more confidence in that than we can that the reconstructed speech of Patrick Henry is what he actually said. So, I mean, these are just a few things that I've, I've given you here. I, I could give you some more, but those are some reasons we can hold to the historical reliability of the Gospels. Yeah, those are great. Uh, let me ask you a side question here that kind of dovetails with this. You mentioned Q, and recently mm-hmm. I was reading uh, Blomberg, and Blomberg hints that there's a possibility that Q is he, uh, Matthew's Hebrew text that Papias refers to. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is a possibility. Keener looks at that possibility. Um, David De Silva looks at that possibility. Um, Dan Wallace is uh, more inclined to think that um, it, Q was probably not the, the Aramaic original, of which Papias mentioned, uh, Matthew writing in. Um, Dan thinks it may be the five discourses of the Lord, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. There are five of those discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And that Q might have been that. Um, he also thinks, because this whole thing about Matthew being written originally in Hebrew or Aramaic, it, it's troublesome because we don't have any manuscripts of that. And even Greek experts such as Dan Wallace and D.A. Carson, say that uh, the Gospel of Matthew that we have today in Greek is not translation Greek. It doesn't really show signs that it had a Hebrew or Aramaic original and that it was translated into Greek. And so even Carson and Doug Moo say in their New Testament intro that it really appears that uh, Papias got it wrong here. Um, I'm not willing to go that far. I, I think that uh, explaining that, uh, saying maybe Matthew did write Q in Hebrew first, or maybe those five discourses of the Lord, maybe that was in Hebrew or Aramaic first, and that Matthew later translated that into Greek. Um, and then either Matthew or an editor used Mark, which was, again, based primarily on the testimony of Peter. So you got Mark, combined it with, you know, this Matthew that was translated a much, much smaller uh, gospel or document. Because when Papias talks about it, he says it was the, the sayings or teachings of the Lord, the logia of the Lord. So um, it's not really saying it's a whole narrative, it's the mm-hmm. teaching. So that's why they think it could be Q, or it could be those five discourses, uh, or some of those discourses. And that was combined with Mark and then some other sources, special uh, material that's unique to Matthew. And that's the Gospel of Matthew that we have today. That's but it's an edited version, a greatly expanded version from what Papias is referring to, that, that Matthew wrote. That's kind of what I assumed from what Blomberg was, was writing. Maybe I misunderstood it, but maybe that was something of a journal or something like that, you know, and being a tax collector that spoke the languages of the time, it it would be expected probably that he kept a journal while he was walking with the Lord and maybe used that as a source later when he wrote his gospel. Anyway, sure. Thank you so much again for listening to this week's interview with Dr. Lacona. Again, this was just the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. Lacona. Tune back in next week to hear the second part of the interview. You can also go to GodSolutionShow.com to get this interview and all of our past shows. Well, anyway, I hope that you were encouraged by some of the evidence for the resurrection and the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels that Mike Lacona shared today 
on the God solution. That all means something very important. For each one of us, there is hope in this dark world. Jesus really did beat death, and he really does offer salvation to all who put their faith and trust in him. If you've never taken that step to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, I would ask you to do that today. The Bible says that all who come to him and put their faith and trust in him alone for salvation, surrendering to him as Lord, will be saved and adopted into his family. If you've never taken that step, I would encourage you to verbalize that right now, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again, and I ask you to come into my life as Savior and Lord to forgive me and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I hope that if you haven't taken that step already, that you'll take that step this morning. I would also encourage you to go to GodSolutionShow.com to get all of our past shows, to leave me comments about future shows that you'd like us to do, to check out a list of local churches that you could visit in your area, a list of books that would be good to read, and so much more. So please go to GodSolutionShow.com. And while you're there, consider partnering with us to keep this show on the air and to expand the ministry of the God Solution Show. You can do that at the Donate tab. Well, thank you so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.